Leads, leads, leads. What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 lawyers over the course of this, the most important decade in the history of the human species, and ask them about what they do all day and hear how they feel about it. My mission is to try to map out what my city, Leeds, a city that has declared a climate emergency, is doing during humanity's biggest emergency. On working hours, we hear how loiners have, are and will be coping with our multiple crises. The global pandemic, Brexit and of course the ongoing and accelerating collapsing of capitalism, the state and the climate through this decade. To do this I need people, people like you dear listener. Most of all I need people who are in Leeds or who are from Leeds to come on this show and be my guests. So please join me and help me with this mission whenever and however you can. Critically I will need people like you dear listener as financial backers. Please consider supporting or donating to this project. You can do so with a £1 monthly donation via either Patreon or Ko-fi, or you could donate any one-off amount to Working Hours via either Ko-fi or through the LibrePay button on the About page of Western Studios' website. Thank you. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. What did you want to be when you grew up? I... I wanted to be either a professional footballer or actually David Beckham, I think, mm. at the time. Um, which now with the guitar stuff is quite, you know, lucky that I didn't become David Beckham. Um, yeah, I grew up in uh, a little small town just outside of London called Stevenage. Quite, you know, uh, lower working class. So football was like our main aspiration, the thing that we all wanted to do at school. Then as I kind of got into like mid-teenage years, a lot of my friends started getting into kind of drugs and things, um, but I got given a skateboard mm. and I ended up, that just kind of ended up transforming my life. So I would go into London on the weekends to South Bank and skateboard with, you know, people in their like mid-twenties, like people who are plumbers or electricians or whatever. Mm. Um, and they started talking to me like, have you thought about university? Things like that. Mm. Um, yeah, so I moved from wanted to be a professional footballer I wanted to be a professional skateboarder to ended up at university going oh how did I suddenly end up here because I was the uh, first family person in my family to go to university mm. uh, so yeah it was a bit of a trajectory and feel quite fortunate that I ended up there so did you have was there any like careers guidance in the school was there anything was it one of those do a test and you need to work at a theme park ones or yeah it said I was going to be a firefighter which is All interesting right with my bad back <laughs> um when I when I was applying for university we had some careers guidance and you know about the UCAS application forms and mm. things and I put on it at that time because I went to do politics I my ultimate aspiration is to be prime minister <laughs> the careers advisor was like you can't say that Cal. <laughs> that's aiming a bit too Why high <laughs> yeah I was like oh, well aim high you know and then I was like all right I'll change it to foreign sec she's like no that's not what I mean. <laughs> You're not um, posh enough. You can't have any of exactly. these. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You didn't get a beating. You went to <laughs> Stevenage. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there was a little bit, but it was more, yeah, kind of ad hoc experience from just a lot of like, yeah, mid-20s nice guys who ended up mentoring me while mm. we were skateboarding. Mm. Um, <laughs> while my mum thought I was 10 minutes away from the house. That's actually in central London. <laughs> Up to what knows mischief. 
exactly <laughs> just like 80s montages in my brain of skateboards and you know oh yeah it was absolutely that and if you go there now they're still there thank god it's been a lot of campaigns to keep it going yeah i heard there was a place where they i can't remember where it was and i'm pretty sure it was when i was down in london and they mm-hmm. the council had kind of like moved all the skateboarders on but then there was like loads of crime and then they were like oh actually come back because it was good having you <laughs> yeah that was like what it was it was a real hub really um and i think it kind of ignited one of my academic interests in like spatial inequalities and that kind of thing like you know like the politics of geography there's a lot of stuff yeah. in there um and yeah like if there were ever any you know if some if like because you'd end up there with 10 year old 11 year old kids and mm. you know, if someone tried to like mug them or whatever it's just the sudden rush of <laughs> skateboarder community it's fantastic <laughs> it was everything i didn't have in the small town i was growing up in yeah, um, yeah. and i think it just showed me a different world really so yeah that's how i ended up as an academic <laughs> yeah You're listening to Series 3, Episode 48, and to my guest, Dr. Callum Carson. This is another Zoom interview recorded on the 5th of December, 2022. Hello, loves. So, firstly, I want to encourage anyone who hasn't listened to the whole of Working Hours to go back and listen to the episodes you've missed. They're all a part of one work, all part of the mosaic of work for lawyers in the 2020s. I wanted to have this episode a bit later. The episode I wanted to run is the one where my mic didn't work and there's a whole load of work to do on it still. So that's going to be the next episode. And I am managing to finish out this series with a 50th episode. That'll take us to 80. Series 4 will start this month. I am still, as always, desperate for guests. You, listening to this in Leeds. You're perfect for this. And so is that person you're thinking of to be on it. Get on this show. Get them on this show. Honestly, it's a struggle to get people on, and I need loads of people. You can be anonymous. You can advertise your side hustle. Whatever, as long as you have an idea or experience of work, you're over 18, and you're either in Leeds or from Leeds. I define Leeds as anything with an LS postcode. So if you fit that broad definition... Get this end on. Also, money. I need money. I need to access more resources, and I can only do that with money. And money comes with more people, bigger audiences, more guests, more referrals. I also need to be able to keep up with that as it grows. I will need more donations and memberships. Please do chuck in whatever you can. It all helps. And if you can afford to be big time and buy the £12 a month Patreon membership tier, then please work your having money magic and do that. Dr. Callum Carson is an associate lecturer at Leeds University Business School. Alongside his ongoing role as a postdoctoral researcher at the Manchester Metropolitan University Business School. Dr. Carson's current research project is the first in the UK to explore employer experiences of universal credit, and at the end of 2020 he completed his PhD in the real living wage at the University of Leeds. Besides a six-month relocation to Geneva in 2016 to work at the United Nations, he has lived in Yorkshire for the past 17 years, and outside of his work in academia, Dr. Carson is a keen photographer, cook, and walker. If you like this show, you should love this episode. For more on decent work, go to ilo.org forward slash global forward slash topics forward slash decent hyphen work.
For more on employers and universal credit, go to gmpovertyaction.org forward slash uc hyphen employers. For more on the living wage, go to livingwage.org.uk. Right, let's do this. Episode 78 of Working Hours with Dr. Callum Carson. That's my next question, which is what's, what is it that you do now? So um, being an academic, that's a wide yeah. wide experience. So w- what is it that you're uh, studying? Yeah, and it, I think it conjures, conjures like um, you know, tweed jackets and someone in the middle age or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm an academic researcher at the uh, Manchester Metropolitan University, where I'm a postdoctoral researcher, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm also a part-time associate lecturer at the University of Leeds, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm based in the business school at both. Mm-hmm. And my research revolves around the real living wage, um, you know, the kind of higher voluntary rate that some employers pay, and then the wider decent work agenda. Um, and then I'm increasingly going in towards a bit more of like corporate social responsibility research and the net zero agenda. So it's quite wide. But the current project I'm looking at is employer experiences of universal credit, mm-hmm. um, because there's no research at all on how employers deal with universal credit. Mm. Um, and if we want a conservative government to actually take notice of issues with the current policies, then we need to tell them that they're annoying businesses as well as claimants and mm. um, so it's one of those it's one of those ones that's directed at policymakers by telling them that yeah there are a lot of different groups you know that are experiencing issues here that you might want to rectify mm. um, but that comes to an end at the end of January um, and then I'm kind of a bit of a career crossroads really I'm not sure if I want to stay in academia or go to a more policy orientated role um, so yeah that's where I'm at at the moment. Mm. Okay, so I mean, they're all interesting areas of research for a podcast like this. So, yeah, do you want to take us through, I suppose, some of your findings, but or, or some of the things that you you kind of coming across in the research, or even like the headlines of like what what are the what are the kind of I don't know threats and opportunities kind of thing. Like, what's the good and the bad? What what are you kind of seeing from these things? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it'd be good to talk about our PhD first, I guess, because mm. that's still the, the most major piece of research and I've done and mm-hmm. I've done entirely by myself. So that was um, exploring the impact of the real living wage on like the UK employment relations system. Mm-hmm. So it was talking to businesses about why they decided to adopt the real living wage. You know, mm-hmm. when they didn't have to, they could have just paid national legal minimum wage rates. Mm then to like people within the organizations in HR procurement or about how it was implemented, the issues around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the workers themselves about how they were affected by being operated to the living wage. Mm-hmm. And then to the living wage campaign itself about how they felt they were making an impact, how they started to begin conversations with employers about how to adopt a living wage, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and the rationale for that was like, again, with my background, like growing up in a single parent household with, you know, a mother who no matter how hard she worked, we were always struggling, even though Mm. she was working so many hours. Mm. Um, And just when I heard about the real living wage, there was an odd, odd lack of research into that at the time. So I thought, go do a PhD in that. And the main kind of findings are, you'll be shocked to hear that if you pay people better, uh, they'll feel more respected at work and they'll stay longer and feel more loyal to the company. Nobody mm. should have to do research into that. It should be obvious. And I would imagine they also give a better performance as well. 
yeah, they give a yeah. better performance. Um, they're less worried about, you know, issues outside of work while they're at work. Mm. Um, so this was kind of exploring like the business case for the living wage. Mm. Um, so some employers decided to accredit for that reason. Others decided, others found these things happened later and then they'd actually accredited initially because they thought it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was exploring like the ethical and the moral case of the living wage and the business case of the living wage. What was more important to employers? Mm. Um, you know, what were they most persuaded by in terms of arguments? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it differed from every employer, but um, what I was really worried about was that I would find employers who were like, no, it was a terrible decision. I shouldn't have done that. And then I would have to report those findings, but <laughs> Yeah, no, it was all it was all uniformly positive. Um and yeah. And yeah, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, sure. I'm yeah, well I, Yeah, I just <laughs> called it I just call it the no shit Sherlock argument, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's obvious really. Um and it's just kind of the business case for doing work better, you know, and the business case for decent work. It is, but that's kind of, you know, the logical, rational kind of everyone it, it's a it's a rising tide lifts all boats kind of thinking rather than mm-hmm. but what about my profits yeah I, I will get less i'm spending more money on my staff when that could be in my pocket so yeah that. <laughs> it, it's that really and it's it's coming at it from their kind of self-interest point of view where i'm trying to say to them if you do this you'll end up with more profits because you won't have a hr department that's increasingly recruiting because everyone's leaving all the bloody time mm, yeah okay? you'll get better people and keep them Ideally. exactly yeah so it's and trying to make them better because I, I suppose there's like you know they have more pressure off them to do stuff i'm, I'm reaching there sorry go on <laughs> no 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 it's true it's, it's true it's um and it's also good kind of it's like it's good pr it's good for their you know like um like public image you know there's a yeah. lot of ethical consumerism at the moment and you know i think that's going to increase down the generations yeah. Um, so it's also kind of future proofing themselves as well. So I'm I'm trying to come at it, at it like I'm trying to like marry up my idealism that work can be done better with their kind of cynical self interest. So appeal mm-hmm. to that to make things better for people at the lower end of the income scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the core of my research, really. So did you just this is a question that I wanted to ask through that. Ooh. So um did you come across any employers that were kind of already doing it and they weren't sort of advertising that they were a living wage employer? Like people who were kind of, oh, we didn't know this was a thing and we were already doing it and we had already found these kind of results and this is why. Like Yeah, I had quite a few of them. Um yeah. because uh, the living wage like foundation who they kind of run the living wage accreditation scheme where, you know, sometimes you'll go into a shop like Lush um, and you'll see the officially credited living wage employer plaque. The real the real issue with the campaign is sometimes just visibility, you know, that employers are doing these things already, but they don't know about it. You tell them about it and then they sign up because they don't, sometimes they don't want to sign up for the clout themselves, but they want to sign up to show other employers that this is a thing that can be done. Mm. And, you know, this is something worth doing particularly in industries like hospitality or retail where it's quite rare Mm. Uh, so you know when I would be because I've sat in kind of a lot of meetings with employees who are considering doing it Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of the blurring of my research and my personal interests I guess Um, and I would talk often about like you know the living wage accreditation being a USP because you know a unique selling point because there's not many people doing it it really Mm. helps you stand out Mm. and one of the big findings I got from HR people I spoke to for the PhD was 
everyone who came in for an interview knew that they were a real living wage employer, mm. you know, and, and it wasn't just people who were being paid at living wage rate. It was people a lot higher as well. Mm. And it just, it just shows something very good about a company straight from the off. Um, mm. So yeah, that was, that came up quite a lot of employers just going, Oh yeah, we're, we're doing this already. So we'll do that. And then that will give us a better USP and a bit of, bit of PR mm. and help other employers. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's not a bad thing to tell the world that you pay your employees enough yeah. to live. Yeah, no shit, sure. <laughs> so we should, um, yeah, we'll, we'll just make the distinction. So let's, in case anyone doesn't know what the living wage is and the national wage, uh, do you want to just explain the kind of distinction between them? Yes, because it's been blurred yeah. <laughs> unnecessarily in the last few years since 2016. Um, so the two legal minimum wage rates are called the national minimum wage, um, which is from anyone from 18 to 23. Mm-hmm. And then the national living wage, which isn't actually a living wage. It's just a rebranding of the legal minimum wage rate for people over 23. Mm-hmm. Um, the George Osborne renamed in 2016, uh, which was yeah, pretty, pretty rough going for the campaign itself because mm. um, it was stealing their popularity to score some political points himself. Mm. Um, so the the Real Living Wage campaign has kind of rebranded into the Real Living Wage now, um, which is, so the national minimum wage, well, the two legal minimum wage rates are, they're kind of calculated based on what they feel like the market can bear, whereas the Real Living Wage is calculated independently by a think tank called the Resolution Foundation. And that's calculated purely based on what, you know, a basket of goods, which helps determine the real cost of living at any current moment. So it's not, so it means that it's based on making sure that nobody is in poverty if they're in work, Mm. um, which is in contrast to legal minimum wage rates, which sadly enough, don't protect you from poverty um, or in work poverty Mm. just by being paid it. Mm. Yeah. I have to. I have a big graph that I present at each conference on a big slide, saying here's the difference. Because, um, yeah, it's quite complicated. But if you go to the Living Wage website, which is livingwage.org.uk, there's a there's a very helpful graph um, which explains the difference, and you can see the the difference in rates through the years since the Real Living Wage began campaigning. Mm. I don't know how regularly they calculate, but given the well, this year. Mm. Um, like what what's their revised what are they at at the moment what should it be well well i mean this year is this year is very interesting because of the cost of living crisis so normally they calculate it each each um each year so every november there's a living wage week mm. and the announced for the next financial year get announced so employers get told it at the same time mm-hmm. yeah so they get told it at the same time and then it's expected that they'll implement it from april the 1st the following year Mm. This year, um, the rates got announced early and employers were asked to implement the new rates of um, £10.90 per hour mm. everywhere in Britain except London. And at London, it's eleven ninety-five per hour. Mm. They were said, can you, can you bring this in straight away rather than waiting for next April? Because the cost of living is just, you know, it's through the roof at the moment. And even by next April, it might need calculating again. So I would this kind of... So. Yeah, so this annual calculation has kind of worked in the past, but at the moment it's just it's a it's a free fall. So mm. yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad I'm not them right now. Um, yeah, mm. 
let's touch on some of the other research so some of the, sure. the the other projects you you're on at the moment um i mean like we could go into the kind of day-to-day of your working but we've had i've had other researchers on the show mm. and other academics on the show so let's just spend a bit of time on these projects and then i'll come back and i'll do more of the kind of day-to-day working stuff if that's okay yeah of course um okay so you're gonna have to remind me of the other projects because i'm trying to <laughs> i'm also i'm looking like i'm not doing anything but i'm also trying to think of ahead and think of other things at the same time so <laughs> oh god yeah. well i mean you know one of the big parts of my job is interviewing people and you know you have a set set of questions and sometimes people start answering questions without you realize without them realizing later on and you're yeah. always mind mapping where the conversations are going yeah so yeah, yeah basically yeah <laughs> that, and that oddly is my favorite part of my job <laughs> Is yeah, people and you know, learning about their experiences and things, especially when you've got questions when you know you you like you say you know you're going to talk about this area and then they hit them early and then they sort of that already makes you think about when you come to that question if you want to bring yeah. things out and yeah, yeah exactly and you can remind them of it um, and yeah that's so like all of my kind of projects like the common theme is that they're qualitative you know which means interviews and talking to people about their experiences rather than just burying my head in some data set or whatever yeah so yeah the current project is employer experiences of universal credit mm-hmm. so the last year well the last year and a half since august 2021 has been um based on interviewing 85 employers across west yorkshire and greater manchester um about their experiences of universal credit and oftentimes they're like what's that got to do with us? You know, we're just the employer. Um, but then you talk to them about things like, do you have employees who don't want to work more hours, you know, in a, any given week or month because it'll affect their universal credit mm-hmm. payments, things like that. Um, sometimes they've wanted to do a nice thing for their employees by giving them a bonus. Mm-hmm. Employees then said like, I would like this money, but this will affect my next universal credit payment. So yeah. I can't yeah. take it. Mm-hmm. Christmas bonuses, similar issues. Um, and it's just trying to find, trying to use employer experiences of this, of which there are none documented at the moment until our research, um, as a way of showing the kind of flaws in the system to policymakers mm. um, and to other stakeholders. Um, and that's kind of what I've got in common with this project and my PhD was, which was also, you know, exploring employer experiences. Because mm-hmm. when I when I started doing the PhD, I came at it very much from, oh, I'm just going to talk to living wage workers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there was some research out there already about how it feels to be at the lower end of the income scale mm-hmm. around that. And I thought if I really want to make some change and persuade other employers or policymakers to do these things, I've got to talk to the decision makers. Because mm-hmm. um, the big thing I found was for the living wage um, project, it was for the PhD, it was the best thing to get employers to pay the living wage is to hear from other employers that it was good for them. Mm-hmm. You know, So I just feel like my role is like not as an academic or a campaigner coming in and telling them what to do. It's, you know, it's just, they go, I'm just the middleman between the evidence and other people trying to pay it. Um, yeah. And for this project, it's, it's less about implementing something and more just about increasing understanding of how employer decisions can affect people who are in work but also still on universal credit and how to kind of learn a bit more about that how to help people you know that are in their workforce be better supported 
Mm. Um, so yeah, the final report comes out 24th of January mm. <laughs> and then six days later, end of my contract. So mm. strange. I mean, that, I've, I've lost jobs because of universal credit. Like I, I was on universal credit. They gave me three pound one month. I couldn't get into work. God. And it was yeah. like, in, in what world is this any kind of anything? Like, I mean, that's just an insult, really. It's <laughs> ridiculous. A, here you go. This is what yeah. we'll give you for a month. It's like... yeah. <laughs> and we've had employers say the same thing. We've got examples of employers who've paid for their employees to get to work because they don't have any money for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something my researchers told me really as well, is that, like, employers aren't just this, you know, big blob of enemies and, and, yeah. and rich people. You know, like just talking to a cafe owner about her employee who was on universal credit and she was, you know, on working tax credit as well because she was better keeping the cafe going. And sometimes if you add group people into these big, you know, labels like employers and employees, it, mm. it kind of really it makes everything seem very binary, but there's actually quite a lot of blurring of boundaries there. Um, and there's a lot of employers who want to help their workforce, but they just don't know how to do it oftentimes because the policy communication from government just isn't there mm. yeah i mean it's it's a whole minefield isn't it yeah um, so that was a lot <laughs> um so okay so the other thing i want to ask on this is have you talked to any self-employed people who are on universal credit yeah a few and they find it <laughs> almost incomprehensible yeah yeah it's just exhausting and and as well they're kind of so I, I I don't know how in any kind of way it's supposed to help unless you never make any money and <laughs> and you have really low overheads and it just pays your overheads. Uh, but then, of course, it can only pay your overheads and you can't make any money. Uh, that's that's the way I understood it. So <laughs> and then when when you go in and they ask you about your business, then they then say, oh, well, you can't be viable because you haven't made any money. But then if I had made any money, you wouldn't have given me any money. <laughs> Absolutely. It's one of those things that you almost feel like is it designed to fail, you know? Yes, it was, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't know too much about the self-employment side of it, but I know that it's an absolute minefield, like you say. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we've been exploring is these kind of increasing policy moves towards what's called in-work conditionality, mm. where if you're on universal credit and you work, say, you know, 10 hours a week, there'll be a bit more pressure for you to like work more hours or like, you know, like instead of that thing where you have to evidence that you're looking for a job, this would be you evidencing that you're looking for more hours or looking to progress. So to me, that would seem like that's incentivizing you not to do that, not to work more, not Mm. to fill in more forms and not to do anything further. In fact, it's probably telling me that working in the first place is probably a bit of a bad idea. That's just how I'd read it. <laughs> and that's how a lot of employers have, have read it as well. <laughs> and there's also employers who, because, you know, the interviews we've had done with them, that's the first time they've even come across this concept. And mm. you talk to employers in retail and hospitality, you know, about the idea that if a worker comes to them and says, I need more hours, that's great when it's busy. Mm. Uh, you know say you're a hotel in January after New Year's Mm. it's dead there's no hours to give Mm. and they're worried that if if rules come in that says you know you have to be always looking for more hours if you can't get those hours or wherever in your current role you need to go to look for a different organization 
Mm. So employers were then worried that they're going to lose valuable members of staff because um, like the policy aims don't like they clash with the realities of the labor market, especially at the lower end. It's just trying to, it's trying to show that just because you have policy aims or you have a government who's ideologically obsessed with the idea that everyone's lazy and just doesn't want to work, you know, mm. rather than it's to do with childcare and, and universal credit and things. Um, it's just trying to show that there's a very, very big clash there between reality and, and policy and the ideological aims behind what created those policies. Mm. which is tricky <laughs> mm. yeah which uh, i mean sounds to me like a kind of banging your head against the wall kind of mission at the moment <laughs> there is a bit of that yeah. we, i mean we, we've got people listening we presented uh an all-party parliamentary group in the house of, in not in the house of commons that'd be interesting in the houses of parliament a couple of weeks ago um yeah we've got we've spoken to lots of people within the department of work and pensions and other policy makers um at the local and national level so people are interested in it. Um, it. I think it's just, you know, being getting them interested in it and getting them to understand more about it is the first step. And the next step is, okay, what are you going to do as policymakers to actually make things a bit better here? Mm. Because it's clearly not working for employers or claimants. Mm. So, you know, and I've never been an academic that, like the big, the big, you know, buzzwords in academic, uh, the academia at the moment are research impact. Um, but that, and that's not something I've ever needed pushed on me. I've always wanted my research to have real world application. It's never been, I'm just going to write about this and six people are going to read it in a journal. I always want to be able to talk to policymakers and businesses and, and just people who can make a difference to people's lives. Um, mm. So that's always been the kind of overriding goal of my research. Mm. Sorry, that was a bit rambling. <laughs> no, no. I, I'm like, so how have you, how have you gone about funding for? For these like have you uh, I mean has it been difficult to get them funded or is it been quite easier people kind of is there a hunger for the information that you you're kind of proposing yeah there is has been for this project so this one was um funded by the economic social and research council so the ESRC and I think they were quite quite taken by the fact that there was no research there around mm. this at the moment so you know you get the original contribution and research impact contributions there and my PhD was funded by the ESRC too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're looking for, you know, funding for research at the moment. There's there's a lot of focus on the social impact um, of what that is going to be outside of academia, mm-hmm. which, you know, is quite right. I guess it's public, public funding um, for research, so it should have a real world impact. So I think I think I've I've either been quite fortunate to have win the applications I've done, you know. To have got the funding I've got mm. but it also might be that it's just a good it's a good kind of lining up of the current agenda that they have with my research interests which are very much taught to the real world and you know talk about the findings of my research to the real world mm. um, there's got to be so many gaps especially in research in this kind of area because I would imagine that the, the money is generally drifting into you know, just saying the same thing over and over again to a degree. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like, so, what? right, okay, so what's in my head is that, you know, there used to be things like industrial relations degrees mm. and industrial relations journalists, and there were people who studied, like, not just businesses and how much money they're making or, like, new management techniques, but, like, the actual 
kind of human mechanics, not HR, but like how class issues and, you know, material issues and those kind of things. And they seem to have kind of disappeared. Mm. So it seems to me like you're kind of, you know, re refilling that niche of like, what are what are the practical things you you know that practically affect businesses and workers and society rather than just they make this much money or they make this much pollution or they're amazing or they're awful like what are they practically really doing i think that that seems to be quite fair now am i wrong in thinking that no no that's a good that's a good uh good assessment um and i think i come at it from quite a quite a kind of mixed view because I did my undergraduate degree in politics. Um, then I worked for six years in an academic department on the admin side mm-hmm. um, in a geography department, you know, where I saw a lot of what human geography is, which is, you know, exploring the kind of like these kind of human, human angles to a lot of these wider things. And then I went back for my master's, which was in uh, social policy, um, no social research and social policy, which was like, how do you, the, the aim of the masters was like, how do you, you know, translate academic research into real world impact? Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I applied for PhDs at sociology departments across across the country. Applied for way too many, mm-hmm. um, and then someone said, "Why don't you look into a business school?" And I was like, "Our oh, business school is just full of people obsessed with accounting." And and they're like, no, you know, there is a big, there is a big drive in in business schools to to look at these things from an industrial relations perspective. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time, some of this stuff may have been done more from sociology departments or, mm-hmm. or um, politics departments, and it differs in every depart in every uh, university. But at Leeds, you know, we've got this we've got this um, center for employment relations, innovation, and change called CERIC, mm-hmm. and everyone really comes at it from like an industrial relations point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, so the wider department doesn't really share that kind of focus or or kind of idealism or focus on like the lower end of the income scale and labor market. But mine did. And sorry, I've, I forgot the question was question. That's yeah, all right. Yes. Yeah. I went off on one. My point is, yeah, I've, I've, I've had quite a lot of different inspirations and different angles that have led me to this kind of kind of core research philosophy, which is like, you know, an intersection between employers and employees and, you know, like like the social socioeconomic ramifications of changes at policy level that affect mm. businesses mm. Um, and i think i've always just tried to aim for who are the decision makers because again when i started doing the phd i thought well i'm not going to convince a conservative government to bring in a higher legal minimum wage mm. but i can maybe provide an evidence base for individual employers who could be persuaded you know to to do that so i focused to demand on it yeah yeah exactly and to you know be persuaded by other employers and be like well look at this quote you know from a finance director so i've got a finance director who a lot of the time finance directors were the ones who were like no we can't do this because it'll just increase the wage bill and no one's telling us to do it mm. um, and then the hr people would say this is actually a good thing mm. and then eventually it would become a good thing but you know i've got some examples of finance directors as the ones bringing it into the company and going mm. Yeah, we're going to take a hit, but this is the right thing to do, mm. you know. And I've got a good few examples like that as well, um, and that's persuaded other employers because outside of my research, I've done a lot of living wage kind of campaigning and advocacy. Mm. Um, I'm on the Mayor of Greater Manchester's living wage task force um, for Greater Manchester. So yeah, there's a lot of 
it's, there's just a lot of getting to the right people, you know, through providing an evidence base of people that they are interested in listening to, which a lot of the time is other other employers. Mm. And, and for a lot of a lot of older school employers, a lot of other men. <laughs> mm. Well, it comes back to something that I've said a few times on this show now, which is peer pressure. Mm. It's the only thing that really works, you know. Um, and you can influence peer pressure with huge amounts of propaganda and so on, but it's peer pressure that makes the change. Let's move into some of the other questions so we can we can kind of push forward a bit. So we'll start off with COVID. So hopefully this will give us a bit of a sense of kind of your day-to-day routine. When we were going into lockdown, um, yeah, I want you to think about like when you locked down, at what point, um, if you did, and also, uh, yeah, your workload at the time, did it increase? Did it decrease? Did you end up being furloughed? Like what what happened through the, the lockdown? And what, if anything, has that changed for you work-wise? Well, I had a great head start on lockdown because I broke my ankle a month before lockdown. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing where you're just walking down some steps and you think there's an extra Oh, step. that's the worst. I was like, I could have, you know, saved It wasn't even skiing car. or anything. No. <laughs> I didn't save a dog from a burning building or anything. I just walked down some bloody steps. I only had one pint as well, so I couldn't even blame alcohol. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'd had like a month of lockdown <laughs> before lockdown, and then lockdown hit. Um, and it wasn't the best position I was in at the time because I was in the writing up stage of my PhD. Yeah. Um, so you get funded for three years for a PhD, but, you know, typically it takes a lot longer than that. Um, for And you spend all your money in the first week. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. So, so by the time the by the time lockdown happened, I had it had been six months since my last bit of funding, and I'd always had part time jobs throughout the PhD, but obviously I couldn't do them because they were they were gone as well through lockdown. So I spent yeah March to that November just writing up my PhD um, in my flat, which was a very isolating experience as you can imagine um it's a very it's the roughest part of a phd for anyone doing a phd typically but it was yeah it was pretty rough to not be even able to go into the office or you know just commiserate with other phd students so that was yeah, a pretty rough time meet and have a drink and go oh god this is a nightmare yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so that was that that was rough that was uh i think i i was quite i submitted it on the 4th of november <laughs> 2020 and then i had my like phd viva examination where you have to defend it mm-hmm. um online on zoom <laughs> in a in a completely empty university on a stormy day because i'd had luckily i'd had a key to a, um, a colleague's office and then it yeah and then i finished my phd i put my mask back on <laughs> i walked home in the rain and i was like oh so that that was that was my phd experience over oh so un, unceremonious and unfulfilling isn't it of just all yeah. that work and not even like a party blower <laughs> no exactly because the the six years i was on the admin position in geography it was my job to like you know i'd get a bottle of prosecco in and mm. people would come out of their vivas and we'd all be in the foyer mm. and we'd all celebrate and go to the pub and I, when I started my PhD, I was like, oh, that'll be me in a few years. <laughs> my actual COVID experience and PhD experience are. So, yeah, the my experience of the pandemic is very much wrapped up in the end of the PhD mm. um, and just being a bit burnt out at the end of it. Mm. Um, but at the same time, 
COVID's affected my work in kind of interesting ways as well by because you know I'm my research interests are on the world of work and the world of work is being fundamentally rewritten by COVID mm. you know um and what defines the decent work agenda now you know like flexible working and working from home they're new elements now to the decent work agenda mm. um in much bigger ways than than they were during my PhD because during my PhD like, like you know you and I would both have bad backs I was quite worried about would I be able to find a job if I can't work in the office five days a week yeah and you know because this was my research area I'd look at the research and you know the like the amount of working from home jobs that are out there and you know unless you worked in IT or a very specialist industry there wasn't many mm. so I'd already had some awareness of that kind of from a personal and a professional perspective and to see it just you know explode during COVID was kind of fascinating and quite gratifying personally because I was like I'm going to be unemployed forever after this because <laughs> I've got a bad back <laughs> but yeah do you use the desk risers? Do you have a, have a standing desk sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, I've got a standing desk and I've got the desk risers and this mm. goes down as well, but I've never really used it going down. Um, it tends to be more just moving about a bit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just chasing the cat around, having a play now and again <laughs> to make sure my back's moving. <laughs> That's a really good way to do it, actually. It's like a natural break when the cat comes to bother you. Yeah. Yeah, so um, yeah, let's let's touch on the decent work agenda a bit. Mm. No, let's do it now because we're in COVID, and I think it's related. And you kind of brought it up there. So, what what's happening in the decent work agenda? Like, what do they think is decent work, and what's their agenda? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm quite institutionalized by using the kind of phrase "decent work agenda" because that's one that was really much that's come from like the United Nations and the International Labour Organization. Mm, it sounds um, very sterile. Yeah, yeah. Of, yeah, let's have this perfectly reasonable thing that we can yeah. all be perfectly reasonable about. Exactly. And then in a year's time, everyone would foam at the mouth when they hear the term because yeah. they've been programmed to hate it so much. Exactly. <laughs> I like, like I said about the universal credit thing, you know, you can have very nice policy ends when you're sat in a meeting room talking about mm. it, but when it hits the reality, it's very different. Yeah, so I initially came across it halfway through my PhD when I got offered a placement in Geneva um, at the United Nations within the ILO, the International Labour Organization, kind of looking at interviews with online crowd workers. So people who did, you know, um, little bits of work online, you know, through Amazon Turk and things like that. And it was about their working conditions and how much access they had to like social protection you know like a minimum wage and things none um, I imagine. <laughs> absolutely none yeah that was the answer and it's also <laughs> because these things are so international you can't just tell you know a government can't institute a living wage because these things are global at the time mm. and it was so it was exploring this kind of how do you make work better for people like essentially like decent work agenda is making work better for people and you know mainly focused on the lower end of the income scale so at the core of that, you've got being paid a decent wage, being paid enough hours to work, you know, employers being flexible about, you know, things like childcare, things like that. Mm. And now, you know, there are new layers being added in through COVID, like, you know, work from home and flexible working in general. Because mm. um, one of the big things I found in my PhD was that employees, you know, when I was interviewing workers who were paid the living wage, a lot of the time, they were happy with a higher rate of pay, but what they really wanted was a bigger guarantee of more regular hours of work. 
and that was more important to them. So the Living Wage Foundation have now actually launched a different scheme called the Living Hours Scheme, where employers can accredit and to commit to a certain amount of hours of work regularly for their workers as like, you know, a new sign of like a new, a new publicly facing sign off. Yes. We're trying to be a good responsible employer here. It's not just about wages. It's also about mm. working hours. Mm. So yeah, the decent work agenda kind of encompasses a lot of things, but at the core it's, you know, you know, it's what do you need to do? What, what do you need to provide to an employee in a job to help them live a decent standard of living? That's not just wages. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I don't. Well, I'm thinking of various questions, but I, I'm I'm like, no, let's not let's not go into them. Let's let's move forward. So, do we want to say anything? Do we want to say anything further on COVID before I move on to other questions? Like, is there because we we kind of touched on the decent work agenda there, and I would imagine a lot of that has been, uh, like you say, a lot of the well-being stuff has come in, and a lot of the I would imagine as well with hybrid working, like social inclusion. In yeah. the respect of keeping people in touch and feeling part of something and not being like oh i'm out in the woods in the remote like yeah. <laughs> nobody knows i exist yeah <laughs> we would know if i came into work or not so there's all that kind of stuff i mean for yourself your own work like how how do you work are you like work loads of hours um and you know you can't separate work and life or you very much like I do nine to five or you're like I start early in the morning and get the best part of the day or you're like I have to drag myself out of bed and make myself turn the computer on and it takes me three hours to wake up with 19 coffees like what kind of (laughs) what kind of worker are you how do you like to to work um inconsistently I'd say I'd say I'm all of them at once different but I've I've always had aspirations of being a very good regimented nine to five worker Mm. um and it never works it never works um (laughs) I I seem to hit my peak around half three to four which Mm. is just infuriating because in the summer it means you're missing out because I'm a photographer as well Mm. so I'm missing out on some great golden hour photos (laughs) or in the in the winter now it means there's no time for a walk because I'm just hitting my stride um and yeah it's quite hard to motivate yourself because a lot of my day-to-day is just you know like I'm based in Leeds but my job's in Manchester because of Covid we don't have an office space you know they're just like just work from home so that's one way that my work's been affected um although you know you could argue more that it's been more affected by my unwillingness to move to Manchester because Leeds is better (laughs) um (laughs) Yeah, so it is quite difficult sometimes to motivate yourself. Um, and I go through peaks and troughs of that. Um, I've had a very good last couple of weeks because the report, the final report for the project is being, being written and there's just been a lot of this has got to be done by five today, you know, and you just do it. And But I think a lot of the time when you've got, you've got very long-standing things, you know, like do this in two months, it's a lot harder to motivate yourself for that than this needs to be done today. Um, and I think that's like you say, linking that back to the decent work agenda, that's where decent work might also involve a bit more of a, a supportive hand on the shoulder for remote workers. You know, um, like you said about inclusiveness, that's another big one. The the current thing that's really big in like HR and decent work world at the moment is, you know, talking about the menopause at work. Yeah, yeah, what, that's come up a fair bit. Uh, I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of new elements being brought in, which is really good to see because 
you know, through the cost of living crisis after the pandemic, it'd be so easy for this kind of thing to just be considered extras that don't, you know, that aren't required when they absolutely are. And they all seem, they all feed back to my original PhD argument, which is, you know, you treat people better, you help them feel more supported at work and they'll be happier at work and mm. shock horror, <laughs> they'll work better and be more productive if they're happier. It's it's a yeah. not rocket science, and there's an economic incentive for that, which is that your business will do better because your workers are doing better. Yeah, well, I know but it's it, not as simple as that. In reality, well, but. yeah, but it fits those kind of. I mean, it fits this sort of, or it's easy to see it as fitting like a, a kind of LinkedIn professionalized version of work, like we all work yeah, in absolutely. in the office office kind of thing. Whereas, you know, if you work in a, you know, like really hardcore call center where you're doing sales mm. or whatever the majority of people know what they're getting into there okay there's all sorts of arguments around their politics and their finances outside of work but most people would kind of go right they know what they're getting into they know they're going to be worked hard they're, there's there's a chance of reward kind of thing and it's easy to kind of say well if you don't want those low-paying jobs go and take another job but it's about raising the whole thing up and I suppose on that level, it's kind of like saying to those call centers of like, if you if you pay your people enough to kind of get into work, I can't hear myself anymore. Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you, yeah. All right. Um, if you can't get into work, for example, then they're not going to make you any money. Mm. So you need to pay them enough to get in to do the job so that they can then get their commission and so on. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And, and then, then like you've got to give that basic that like if you don't want to give them anything fine but you give them the basic dignity of being able to like do the thing that you want them to do and then from there it's up to to you and them that's yeah. what i'm that's what i'm trying to say that that kind of there is a place for people to kind of dismiss it but then at the same time they kind of need to accept that everyone needs raising up or no one's going to get further up Absolutely. I've said, I've said that in an awful way. I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, this is how I come to my arguments, you know. In, they look very elegant when they're written down in academic. Yeah. Like, this is how I talk about it. I talk about them in the pub and then I'm like, oh, I've got that now, you know. <laughs> but yeah, like for, for employers like that, you know, like an element of the decent work agenda might just be providing in work progression pathways for call center because yeah. to get to managerial level. Yeah. It's just those, and that benefits them as well because they retain people who've got that on the ground experience. Yeah, and then they can have people in there who say to new recruits, like, "I started here six months ago. Now I'm management. You know, like I made X amount of sales. Like you can do this as well." Exactly. Yeah. Right. So you know, it's quid pro quo. It's treat your people better, and you'll do better as well. Mm. Uh, and yeah, the results of that are often uneven, but. I feel like the sentiment and the argument there is is worth pursuing. My favourite quote around it that I've come across, and I don't think anyone's put it better yet for me, mm. is the, the whole sort of, what if I train my staff and they leave? Mm. What if you don't and they stay? Yeah, <laughs> It's that whole thing of like, well, I'll have to spend money to make them better. But it's like, well, if you don't, they'll leave or the competition's going to do it or, you know, yeah. that that's a, a threat. You know, you need to address that threat, I think. Yeah, definitely. But even then, you know, there are, you know, their glass ceiling review scores will go up, things like that. They'll get a reputation as a good employer. Mm. Um, Because, you know, we've got employers who, have you heard of the kickstart scheme through COVID? Mm. Mm. So, like, we talked to a lot of employers for this project who, you know, 
employed people as kickstarters on that you know so that's six month placements funded by the government to to, you know create a new role within an organization Mm. to help them out through the pandemic and help a young person have some experience through a pandemic Mm. and i don't think i've ever explained it that elegantly before (laughs) (laughs) it's taken it's taken a year and a half (laughs) but you know we we spoke to employers there who said like they designed roles not to help them it wasn't so they could then progress within their organizations after the placement because there weren't any positions available, mm. but they designed the roles for those Kickstarters, longer term career development with other people, mm. because as employers, they felt like they had a responsibility to help support people, not just into work through schemes like Kickstarter, but into better work mm. and you know, better employment opportunities. Mm. So, you know, one element of like the decent work agenda there is just looking after your your employees' longer-term career development aspirations, even if it doesn't benefit you and your organization specifically. Mm. This mm. this agenda is just getting bigger and bigger, isn't it? Mm. But that that's that's the case, isn't it? <laughs> it is that problem with work. Of of well, how do you imagine it? You know, like oh, well, it's work. All right, it's toil in the fields. Um, it's working in a factory. It's uh, building a railway. It's conquering the world it's you know like it's everything so you can't boil it down into it all needs to be like this or it all needs to be like that but you can kind of say what's our baseline here yeah it's it's just setting some standards really you know and and these things are different in every industry and and people's individual living experiences of work are different Mm -hmm. in every for every person because every person is unique every person has their own you know, mental health struggles or concerns outside of work that then affect their their time in work. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is more just about setting down some, you know, like the legal minimum wage is a regulatory, you can't pay under this, even though if that's well enforced is another argument. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just setting down some guidelines to say these things should be done at a minimum, you know, and and it's not just as a minimum, it's like these are the minimum, please go beyond them as well if you can. Yeah. Um, and, you know, peer pressure should help you do that because if other employers are doing it in your industry, you should want to compete with them on these elements too. Because mm. um, otherwise you just get all, you get all your staff poached anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, self-interest. Uh, yeah. Shall I try and make it look like it blends in seamlessly? I don't know if the <laughs> audio will match up anyway. So um... I'm in the same room, so hopefully it will. <laughs> okay. Uh well, basically, the Brexit question is the same as all the other questions, which is mm. um, how is it affecting your work? So since we have left the EU, did you notice any change in your work? Have you noticed any change or or do you see any changes coming even, I suppose? And like, have they been good, bad, negative or just nothing you've noticed? Uh, all of the above. Really. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I actually moved to Geneva two days after the referendum result. Wow. Um, so I'd I'd had the so I was in the middle of my PhD and I got the I got a call that said you know we're looking for someone with a bit of expertise in the living wage to do you know a placement at the United Nations in Geneva do you want to go mm. and that was like two weeks earlier and they were like yeah you need to decide pretty quickly be on a be on a plane mm. um, on the Saturday morning so so yeah I moved you know to not the EU but to Switzerland which has the you know the freedom of movement agreements and everything with the you know, with the European Union just as they were being taken away from us mm. back home so mm. I 
I had a first, like, so I would do my grocery shopping in France, which I could see from my bedroom window mm. uh, every Saturday. So I would just walk across the border mm. um, because it was a lot cheaper to do my food shopping in France than it was in Switzerland. Yeah. And there's, there's no border controls. There's no nothing. Um, yeah. So I got this great sense of the freedom of movement opportunities within Europe, just as it was yeah, being taken away from us. So I think like living abroad and living specifically in that situation gave me a real sense of just kind of how isolated the UK was, even before Brexit, really, just how mm. how different it was to the rest of Europe. Um, mm. And then kind of returning to the UK since then, you know, into like a post-Brexit landscape or, mm. you know, at least the landscape where Brexit was in process. Um, mm. I think I've always kind of felt since then like a bit one step in, one step out from the UK. Yeah. Um, and I think I've tried to like subconsciously, but possibly a bit consciously at times, like altered my approach to how I kind of look into my research in general, my research interests. I think I've tried to internationalize them quite a bit Yeah. Um, to give me more opportunities if I decide to move abroad. Yeah. Uh, and that's not just because of, um, you know, just because it'd be nice to live abroad because mm. of Brexit, but there's also just a, a practical point of funding streams and mm. you know if we leave the we have left the EU um mm. a lot of the funding for academic projects is is gone that tap's turned off and mm. the government is on another new austerity drive which is going to affect um research grant funding and mm. if i'm looking to do a career in academia or i specialize in research that's mm. not that's not an ideal environment or situation to be in mm. so yeah, I'm I'm increasingly considering moving abroad, but it's mm. just it's finding the right time, it's finding the right place. Yeah. Because at the moment, yeah, there is just a perfect storm for kind of future research funding within Britain. Yeah. And particularly for, for you know, research focused academics such as myself. Yeah. So yeah, like to summarize, I guess I think it's kind of affected my work more widely by helping me considering the possibilities of opportunities abroad more than I probably would have done pre-Brexit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just kind of giving me a sense that, you know, I've been increasingly aware that my quality of life could possibly be a lot better abroad than in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a sense in Britain of, of just a, think when things are bad, we think to ourselves, oh, it could be worse, but we never think, well, how could it be better? <laughs> you know, like, well, yeah. And, and our response always seems to be, but let's make it worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And let's it's like, oh, well, it could be worse. Oh, well, well, let's make it worse then. Yeah. Let's just. <laughs> no, let's not. Yeah. And uh, like, I think it's obvious to like a whole bunch of people now. Like, I, I mean, it is we've just moved ourselves completely out of being like a, a you know, this sort of us being a G7 nation and a world leading nation and stuff. Mm. And it's just like we've moved from that category into like you know, B B slash D tier kind of like nonsense place um, with like, you know, very low quality standard of living, you know, because the majority of the people that are going on strike are, you know, people that are going to food banks. And these are people in professions, in jobs where you have to train for a long time to get into them. They're supposed to be good, well-paying jobs. And then all of those industries people are leaving because there's been loads and loads of cuts it's yeah it's a nightmare and then there's all the strikes that are on today yeah um you know and still still there's a press that's going and defending a government Mm -hmm. that clearly is not working you know 
Um, it, it seems that Britain is working, but the government isn't working. Yeah, and Britain <laughs> is working, but constantly being told it's not working enough. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not getting paid enough is the problem. Yeah, and why won't it just, you know, put up with increasingly bad pay protections and decent work standards? Yeah, and uh, having your rights ripped up. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's another thing that worries me about Brexit is, you know, the working rights implications of that and employment rights and mm. and what's coming down the line if we get another Conservative government, mm. um, even after the next two years. So, yeah, a lot of that stuff worries me. And, I, I, yeah, I'm finding it increasingly hard to understand how it could be turned around in Britain, um, particularly when there still seems to be 30 to 35% of the population that will always vote for the Conservative Party. Um, mm. It's hard to figure out where we go from there. Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah, but things do change and they can change quickly. Exactly, yeah. That's the other worry. Like, is you know, is moving abroad just abandoning things? Should I be working to make things better here? It's Mm. those kind of issues, really. But I don't think like I would have even considered moving abroad if I hadn't had the opportunity to you know live in Switzerland for a while. And I think that's kind of just broadened my outlook to life and um, and work and career. Mm. in quite a, in quite an expansive way and brexit has kind of just exacerbated those feelings mm. um so yeah a bit of a crossroads but we'll see where we go from here as long as i get still get to do some you know research around making work better particularly mm. for those at the lower end of the income scale that's kind of my that's kind of my drive and you know like i said i think last time we spoke about you know work is dignity that's kind of the mm. central focus of my research the central argument and there's a good business case for that because it's amazing how when people are paid well and happier at work, they're more productive. Would you um, consider sort of going into like a consultancy or something like, you know, joining, for example, one of the big four and do it because they'll often do a lot of, you know, work based research and stuff. Or would you yeah, rather I, stay in academia? I have considered that. I think I need to look into it a bit more. I think why I have a bit of a concern that that's the kind of role that would end up in just kind of like papering over the cracks of, of, of bad companies to make them look good in certain areas. Mm. Um, But that might be a very cynical (laughs) approach, like, you know, Mm. mindset before I've looked into it. Um, Mm. Because if I could make a big difference from that, that would be great. I interviewed a lot of people at KPMG in particular for Mm. my PhD living wage research, you know, and there were some really passionate people there about, the living wage they were one of the first big supporters of it in london that really pushed it across canary wharf mm. um so yeah it's definitely something i've been considering now it's the now it's the christmas holidays i'm very torn between starting to research new career opportunities and also just relaxing so i think i might try to do a bit of both and yeah. probably end up nowhere balanced <laughs> <laughs> as is the way you know the, this constant background of of news like mm-hmm. even i kind of I, I try and push myself away from the news a bit more these days, but you know, it's kind of there in the background and whenever you hear it, it's terrible. And then, and then you're like, well, it makes you think, you know, like you wouldn't be thinking about necessarily leaving. Like you might be thinking about, it'd be nice to work abroad for a bit, but you mm-hmm. wouldn't be thinking about it in the same way. If there wasn't that background context, that's, you know, that creates issues. It creates worry. It creates anxiety and it creates, responses yeah definitely and especially when part of your research is is locating the patterns in these things you know Mm. like seeing the like i remember in 2008 when 
you know the word food bank was just like we don't really talk about food banks exceptional yeah yeah and now warm banks are entering into the lexicon Mm. and it's increasingly like it's increasingly just acceptable these things um Mm. and the more they get accepted the more it this just becomes a part of normal day life for britain and you know we don't we don't we expect less from our government we expect less from the social security support system Mm. um but yeah it's that kind of thing really you know so you notice the patterns and the patterns always seem to be you know weakening of standards weakening of services um Mm. and you wonder where it's going to lead to in the future Mm. and whether this is a country you want to build a life in um and yeah sorry i get very philosophical (laughs) no i know okay um i'm gonna close it off there because otherwise we'll just spend ages (laughs) like we will go round and round moaning about various aspects of brexit oh yeah this is pub talk (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i'm gonna i'm gonna stop that bit uh yeah um in terms of social media do you have to do much on that front are you encouraged by funders to kind of promote findings or do are you incentivized to go and be on social media to try and you know get new projects like what's your work relationship to social media do you have to do it and how much time do you spend on it is that time well spent yeah I don't think anyone's ever has ever told me I have to do it. I think, you know, people say as an academic, it's good to have like a, like a social media presence and mm. um, specifically on Twitter. That's where a lot of the conversations happen, which can be risky as well, because, you know, it kind of encourages a lot of just free flowing debate. And then you think any academic can see that ever mm. anything you write and that could affect their view of you in the future um, mm. of what you believe or whatever. Mm. The other, the other issue with that is if you say you have, you know, a certain disdain for a certain government of the time. Um, and you say that on Twitter all the time, mm. but then you want to talk to policymakers. Mm. They're not going to want to talk to you because they'll think anything you say, they say to you will just get twisted out of, you know, mm. out of turn and they'll just be made to look even worse. So it's that tricky balance to find where you, you know, you want to, you want to show what you believe in because what you believe in is essentially what you write about in academia Mm. but also kind of make sure you're maintaining and establishing kind of professional relationships through things like twitter um, and linkedin Mm. so that's that side of it um on the recruitment side of it for my projects because i'm you know i talk to a lot of like i you know set up a lot of interviews it's a lot it's quite hard sometimes to get people to sit down for interviews because they Mm. often think they've got nothing to say um, (laughs) and then they talk for an hour yeah, I was yeah. like, we'll get through this in half an hour because I don't like <laughs> being interviewed. Apparently, we're still talking. So, yeah, yeah. so Facebook and Instagram are quite good for that. Um, Facebook's been quite interesting for this project because I've been I've like joined a lot of the local like town groups like Ilkley, Otley, Branham, mm. all that kind of stuff mm. to find little local businesses who will talk. And then just because I don't use Facebook too much, I'm still in those groups, mm. and I've been seeing like. Uh, like a lot of interest in local employers doing stuff around net zero now, mm. um, which is helping me formulate my new research ideas for like mm. for future projects. Um, so sometimes these kind of this use of social media can have kind of ramifications down the line that you didn't expect. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so it's a complicated relationship, but it's nothing too controversial. Um, and then Instagram, I just mainly use personally for my own photography. 
mm. um, and to show people pictures of the cat because everyone people like cat pictures. People like cats, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the internet does for sure. Anyway, dogs as well. The yeah. animals apparently just go wild. Um, <laughs> it's next on my agenda. Get a dog. <laughs> Decent work agenda for me. Yeah, if you're going to say anything online, say it with an animal. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that kind of covers social media. I, I mean, do you, let's do the kind of internal comms. Are, are you, you know, when you're contacting colleague, colleagues, colleagues or, um, <laughs> you know, sort of interview applicants and so on, is that mainly just sort of email? Do you use things like Slack or uh, what's the Microsoft one? Come on, brain. I can't believe I've forgotten the name of it. Oh, Teams. Teams. Teams, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's a Monday. It's <laughs> the, and I just hammered you for an hour with my. It, it's like the most sacred work word, isn't it? Team. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, Microsoft Teams. Like, do you use any of those? Like, do you find them useful? Do you find any? Like, is there any particular tool that you think, oh, that's really good? Like, I would find it very difficult to to work without this. In terms of social media and recruitment, it, it was more direct messages on Twitter and just mm. say can I email you? Can you give me your email address and I'll email you more details. Mm. Um, and then I'd email them and then the, I'd be like, right, let's set up a Teams or a Zoom call to just chat about the research. Mm. Then you go through the whole, oh, you don't look like an academic. <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't born at 50 with Tweed on, you know, <laughs> and then, then they relax a bit because I think sometimes people hear the doctor and they get a bit nervous and then they realise they're actually talking to another human and it's fine. Yeah, um, yeah. And it yeah, so... Doesn't take seventy years to get there. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Thankfully, yeah. So yeah, it's it's kind of like a yeah. Twitter is the through you know is the beginning process, and then it kind of flows through Teams, Zoom, emails, that kind of thing. And it's just about st- establishing trust with people before they'll finally sit down. And the other people are just like, yeah, I'll meet you, you know, in cost for an hour on Monday. We'll chat about it. So it's different with every person, but social media has been incredible for just helping to recruit employers and employees because I can't imagine how hard it was before this. Yeah, and find people, yeah. Yeah, notice in the newspaper or something. Yeah, yeah. So in your work, um, is there anything that you can do to either raise awareness or to mitigate or adapt to climate change? Is it a concern for you if it's not a concern for you? why i suppose because i haven't asked that question <laughs> but i haven't i haven't met anyone yet who's like i thought there'd be more climate denial you know because the media tells you things and then you think the world's away and then you ask people and then the world's another way but yeah so on the climate crisis front like is it a concern is it something that you can do anything about it and is, is it kind of in your work is it in your thinking of your work um well the earth is flat and there's no such thing as climate change. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you know, it's good to hear that from an academic, at least. We've yeah, got there you go. <laughs> Please don't take that out of context. You've got that on all. <laughs> you will have a copy as well, so you will have the context. Yeah, fine. <laughs> um, I protect my guest, or I try to. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take um, it's not <laughs> affecting my work at the moment, but what it's doing is making me formulate my new research project ideas in a new way. So I'm kind of increasingly moving from just like a sole perspective on like the living wage or like, you know, the decent work agenda Mm. to 
to kind of a new I'm still trying to formulate the ideas around this so like writing up the notes for this was the first time I'd really written it down but you know I'm trying to develop a proposal around like exploring the business case for employers to like kind of commit more strongly to net zero initiatives Mm. which would be along similar lines to the core arguments my PhD you know there's there's an ethical benefit to that which is you know we don't burn to death Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but there's also a a business case for that which is the net zero you know perspective like the agenda is coming i'm trying not to use the word agenda too much because of the decent words (laughs) but this is going to become more and more important you know as time goes on so getting ahead of this and getting embedding this within your organization it's good for your corporate social responsibility it's good to attract high quality candidates Mm. so it's it's kind of you know it's trying to marry up those arguments which were just about the living wage before with how do i get businesses to adopt new kind of you know greener approaches to things by utilizing those core arguments if that makes sense yeah and then another side of it is i'm quite interested in the need for kind of a strong you know government regulatory response to net zero Mm. a kind of wider so that would be like a wider business case from a government perspective Mm. for the uk to become a world leader in like you know reskilling for green jobs and then as the wider business case for making these jobs decent work orientated workers paid the living wage mm. um, but i'm still trying to figure out the exact details of that um, and how that would work and how it would be funded which is always <laughs> the next step so yeah it's it's it just you know it's the most important challenge we face today so mm. kind of attempting to like marry up my existing research interests with that and then tying them into an exploration of what I'm already interested in through a climate change perspective feels just like the right thing to do and the common sense thing to do. You know, if anything, if I can do anything through my research to help, you know, combat climate change, I'll do it because, you know, like I don't know as much about concrete as your previous guest, but (laughs) hopefully I can, you know, look at the socioeconomic ramifications of it and help things in that kind of small way. Mm. And on a personal level, I just try not to think about <laughs> climate change and the ramifications too much because it's just terrifying. Mm, mm. Yeah, and it, well, and I can see why people are put off or whatever because it is one of those things where you, you kind of <laughs> every page is a new horror. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, there was just one this morning on Twitter, and it was like about methane, and I was just like, oh, oh God oh for god's sake yeah it's all terrible but anyway so i did have quite a good segue here with the ubi so so this is to do with i've said this a few times so i don't feel like i'm necessarily but like maybe i am pushing an agenda now at this point but like from from doing this what i'm taking from it so far and bearing in mind this is my subjective you know massive bias i'm not a big fan of work I like doing stuff and I do like to work hard on stuff occasionally, but I don't want to work hard all the time. I don't want to get up and I don't feel like um, my life's validated because I worked hard kind of thing. Yeah. But I think on on the climate front, it, it's like we need to get money in people's pockets, pay them more so that they can deal with just the, the day to day and work less, not more. Everyone yeah. working less because there's loads of work to do. But there's also loads of unnecessary work going on that people are killing themselves spending too much hours doing. So let's 
reduce the whole amount of work, give people mm. money, and then like let's see the actual work that needs doing. Concentrate on that, get it done, do it good. That that's my perfect world kind of scenario. So with that in mind, that's my link from your what you said about climate change into UBI. Mm. See what your opinion on UBI is. Uh, so if we had a universal basic income, would you still be doing the job that you do now, do you think? Would you be doing it the same way if you would still be doing the same job? And um, if you weren't doing this, what, what what else would you do? What would you be doing? Big questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, just to go back, but not to deviate. Um, yeah. Another core element, decent work agenda big at the moment four day working week which yeah i did one of a lot yeah Yeah. so that's a big one um i mean certainly i would and this is something i'm looking at now because you know this current job's coming to an end i'm looking at jobs that do have four day working weeks as something to you know explore um and not just from like a like personal perspective but also what it says about as an organization yeah i think i do think i'd still be doing I'd still be pursuing my research interests. Mm. I'm not sure that I would necessarily, and I'm not sure I even do at the moment, feel that I would have to pursue them from within academia. Mm. I think there's there's a real tricky balance sometimes between the fact that a lot of the jobs that enable you to do these kind of things well in a a charity or in a research environment or whether they're short-term and they're insecure. Mm. Um, And that, you know, unless you're from a very wealthy family or something, or you have some sort of financial safety net, that kind of really reduces the risk that you're willing to take because, you know, I'm sure I have like an overinflated fear of destitution and unemployment, which is just something, you know, that I, I've been dealing with because of my background and because I feel so fortunate to have got here already that I'm just mm. waiting for it to be taken away at any moment, mm. um, which very much, you know, which that fear wouldn't be there as much with you with a UBI. Mm. Um, so I think I may take more risks with my career, take more short-term thing, short-term kind of campaigning roles that could maybe help more directly, mm. but I wouldn't have to worry about how I'd pay the rent in six months. Mm. Um, so I think I'd take more risk and I'd probably, I'd probably approach things from a much more kind of face first, the face forwards approach to uh, like campaigning and activism than, the research side of things does mm. it's just hard to find a balance between between being financially okay and taking risks when you know that you don't have anything to fall back on um so i think it would yeah it would it would give me more allowance there to take more risks and it would enable me to you know cut my hours down and have a better work-life balance i think as i've come out of the it's taken me like a good couple of years to come out of the burnout from the phd mm. uh, and to remember that weekends are, are a thing that you don't have to <laughs> that you don't have to feel guilty about when you're yeah, doing yeah. that. Um, and I'm still finding that balance between relaxing on a weekend and you know leisure time, and then feeling like I've got to be productive in other ways. Mm. And you know, because um, I think getting rid of that guilt that you should be working all the time after five years of a thesis is mm. a long <laughs> a long process. Um, so if I could, you know a four day working week would enable me to find a better balance there. I think because fitting in everything you have to do as an adult with the fact that you should also be relaxing a bit on a weekend as well. It's hard in two days. <laughs> and then I think maybe I would just, I'd kind of pursue my interest in photography a bit more 
mm-hmm. perhaps professionally, you know, take a course or take up some. I've always liked the idea of using my photography to to document uh, workplaces um, or just ways of like using photography as a way to communicate like research findings that aren't just 20 pages of academic academic ease um mm-hmm. barely anyone can read you know um just and it just be the ability to have the time and the freedom to think about these things and to formulate them in your head mm. uh, very much like i'm doing right now <laughs> mm. yeah so i think it would just it would just give me brain space and financial security to take more risks if i could summarize okay so before i move on to the change question i want to like mm-hmm put two p's to you mm-hmm. uh precarity and um oh. i've forgotten the other one now <laughs> Producti- pr- productivity um, so i was listening to um do you know mark blythe yeah so when he on one of his podcasts had someone can't remember the name of the guest but they were talking about precarity mm. and how they had found that with inequality People weren't that bothered about inequality. Like people were all right with it. They're like, the world's not fair. Some people are rich, some people are poor. What where the problem came in was the precarity. Mm. Like when people didn't know what next week was gonna bring, or you know, what tomorrow was gonna bring, or where they were gonna be in six months. Not in a like, I could be anywhere in six months, but like, oh my God, am I gonna be able to pay the basic bills in six months? That's when stuff went crazy. Yeah. And the whole kind of thesis of their argument was like, it's not it's not necessarily, okay, the inequality is a big factor, but it's not necessarily the inequality in, its, in and of itself. It's the precarity. It's like that there are no careers. There are, you know, there is no social safety net. There is, you know, jobs don't pay you enough. People are in poverty and work. Like all of that is insecurity, is uncertainty. And then the David Graeber thing about, like you know all this obsession on production and productivity mm-hmm. and and making something like especially considering that making stuff means releasing greenhouse gases because yeah. that's basically unavoidable from making stuff so as much as like i say work less i say produce less as well so graver's point is like you know it, you make a cup once you wash it a hundred thousand times like all our focus is on production productivity so I want to get your take on those two P's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, with climate change, like our focus should be on slowing down things, not mm. speeding things up. You know, it should be about about consolidating and finding almost, it sounds paradoxical, but finding effective ways to be less productive to, you know, mm. you know, to work Do less. Do things slower, faster. yeah, more yeah. inefficiently. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that helps people's personal precarity Mm. uh, by giving them more of a work-life balance, um, especially with something like a living wage or a UBI, where work doesn't have to be, you know, the be all and end all for um, security. Mm. Um, Because at the moment, you know, employment rights are still trying to be taken away Mm. rather than being provided. Mm. Um, And yeah, it it just feels like the exact wrong agenda at the exact wrong time. Mm. at the moment you know we should be slowing down when we're speeding up and it's about working harder rather than working smarter Mm. Um, and it's always about the people at the lower end of the income scale who are being told to work harder Mm. not everyone in general which doesn't escape me 
when, which is quite interesting from a climate change perspective, when, you know, the people at the very top are the ones causing the most emissions. So, yeah, I think we need to be focused. I can't remember how I said it now, but yeah, slowing down <laughs> rather than speeding up. Um, mm. Well, I'd, I'd rather work, you know, an 80 hour week where I was completely secure. I had millions of pounds in my bank. Mm. I had hundreds of cars and, you know, private jets and stuff. I'd rather do an 80 hour week with all of that than do mm-hmm. a one hour week where I didn't know if I was going to have enough money to eat for the entire rest of the week. That's a harder, that's a harder working week than the 80 hours that they do. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Because the mental stress of not knowing what comes next, you know, whether it's tomorrow, next week or next month is terrifying. And, you know, the, the workers I spoke to often had permanent contracts as a part of like being paid a living wage because their employers were good mm. and their friends were always trying to be recruited within that, you know, these organizations just because mm. it's terrifying to not know where you're going to be, you know? Mm. Like, and like, if I'm saying I will, I take less risks because I'm worried about my precarity mm. you know, an academic level, you extrapolate that by a million to people who are on, you know, minimum wage roles and only working 16 hours a week because you know they they can't work more because they can't afford the high cost of childcare. Mm. Um, it's terrifying and yeah there was it's- another another thing that i saw recently I don't, I don't know if you've come across this i was trying to find actually the the, the source this morning but so because i couldn't remember where it was from but I'd seen this thing. So people who are in load paid jobs, I think they were using nurses as well. I can't remember if it was US or UK. So, you know, everyone take this with whatever pinch of salt. Sure. But um, people in in low paying jobs with the, you know, hard hours and stuff, you know, because nursing is a low paying job now, apparently. Uh, right, so, yeah, that having to use taxis to get into work because they live in areas that are deprived that don't have decent public transport. So you can't rely on the public transport and, you know, it doesn't go around there anywhere. You know, you have to walk 20 miles to get to it. So people take cabs, which is using up a huge chunk of their, their money already, yeah. like their earnings to get into work. Is that something that you've come across? Because you, all these kind of, you know, it's like that's counterintuitive, but it's just like, if this doesn't happen, I don't get that. I don't get into work because I'm not going to walk 20 miles every day to wait for a bus that doesn't turn up kind of thing. Like, you know, people do these things for reasons, not because they're crazy or stupid. It's yeah. Because their options are limited. Like, are you have you come across any things like that or, or additional, you know, seemingly contradictory things? I mean, that's the other element that I'd, I'd like to write more about, but I haven't really been able to through this project which is like the regulatory response to these kind of things Mm. like i can't as much as i talk about employers you know taking taking up the baton where governments failed at the same time it sometimes still things still rest on government shoulders like public you know transport and stuff to get people to work on time and Mm. to do it regularly and without stressing them out even more about whether their bus is going to turn up which you know we know a lot about in leeds so yeah, that's that's kind of that's the other element. That's the other flip side of my research, really, which is that you can't you can't just outsource everything from the state to individual employers mm-hmm. to make better. You know, the government still has a role to play here, and the state has a big role to play here in making sure 
you're protecting people and helping making sure they can get to work and provide good work through just making sure they can even get to the front door and just providing the kind of kind of what I call like the regulatory framework for you know decent social conditions you know mm. the UBI could be part of that um probably not under this government but you know mm. a different government um public transport links is one of them like you know, I live in Leeds, but work in Manchester. And every time I go to Manchester, the trains are cancelled. And I just often think if this, like, you know, the last couple of months has just been absurd. And if this was happening down south, it wouldn't, it wouldn't stand. You know, they would oh, have God, no, 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 no. Like, I know southwest are terrible, but this is, I've never seen anything like this in, in yeah, my lifetime, yeah. in my professional lifetime. And it's just, when you let those things slide, you know, everyone is affected and everyone's working lives are affected. And that is always going to be magnified by the people who are already struggling just to get to work or just to survive, you know, the bottom end of the income scale. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't want my research to, to feel like it's only saying, you know, employers have to do everything themselves. The state still has to step up and certainly step up a lot more than it has is doing at the moment when it feels like it's trying to withdraw from the social contract rather than protect people more mm. which is absurd in the middle of a cost of living crisis mm. well you know that we we live in the age of the absurd yes we do <laughs> think of it is no longer parody <laughs> no it's now it's now a training video yeah it really is <laughs> this is what Guess you'll what? be doing <laughs> except with more crime yeah <laughs> more procurement <laughs> yeah more more dodgy dealings yeah so change question i think this will be interesting mm. um so it's basically the question is if you could change any three things at work uh what would they be they can be as big or as small as you want you don't have to use them all you could say everything's perfect i don't want to change anything and as well I, i'm going to add this caveat here for you kind of based on the research of like and and the decent work agenda kind of thing of like what three changes do you think would be useful to see in work? I think we've kind of probably touched upon them, but yeah, if you can think about that as well, but yeah. So what, what would you change if you could? Yeah. Well, I mean, my first one for me was, would be an answer for the, to the wider question as well, which is, so for me is like the, the complete proliferation of like short-term insecure contracts in academia, which is just, it's pretty much commonplace now you finish a PhD you know, you work very insecurely mm. for a good four or five years before you may be lucky to get a lectureship somewhere in the country. It means that so many talented people are leaving academia because they're not willing to do it. Um, it's certainly something, you know, that's on my mind a lot because there's not even, there's the risk element I mentioned earlier, but there's also, there's also the, <laughs> the element of you feel a bit like a mug <laughs> at a certain point. Mm. That, that your passion for your you know profession is being taken advantage of mm. to enrich people at the top while you're floundering around in insecure contracts feels Isn't like it? every job i've ever done yeah <laughs> <Nearly>. exactly <laughs> and it's like not the insecurity part of it but they're taking them taking people from mugs part is very mm. relevant i think to nursing because you know my sister's a nurse mm. and you know they people go into prof nursing not because they want to be rich but because they want to help people yeah and but they do want to be able to eat and have exactly. a house this is it you know <laughs> so it, yeah i just it's just this idea of the conditions can be 
worsened because people will always want to work in those professions. Um, and for me, that's, you know, people will, people will always do these insecure, insecure short-term contracts in academia because they want to stay in academia. Uh, but it's increasingly difficult to like, to feel secure in a career or to feel like you have a long-term future within academia if this keeps happen- happening. Mm. Um, and you'll always have one foot out the door. Mm. Um, and from like a, like not to get too theoretical or anything, but like from a class perspective, it means a lot of working class people who got to university and got their PhDs are gonna, you know, not be represented in academia beyond that because they're just not gonna want to do it. They're not gonna be willing to do it. They're gonna be too, too frustrated or concerned about the increasing kind of like financial insecurity of doing that, of retaining contracts like this for four or five years mm-hmm. i find it hard enough and i don't have children or anything if i had mm-hmm. you know children i'd mm-hmm. there's no way i'd be doing this i would have left academia already mm-hmm. and it's just yeah it's just that notion of always having one foot out the door um which i think is probably healthy because you can often take be taken advantage of or just accept worsening conditions if you're just willing to stay in it regardless mm-hmm. um but yeah i think it, it really does have like a like academia in general you know, is so weighted towards people who already have a lot of privilege. And if they put, if you feel like the entry level conditions after the PhD of getting into academia, are just accepting security for five years, they're going to keep losing people. And, you know, academia is just going to keep being represented by people who already have the most fortune, fortune and privilege. Um, mm. So that's, that's one thing I changed kind of like, yeah, this idea that short term insecure contracts in academia at the early career researcher stage is just accepted as just part of the system is it doesn't have to be you know it's mm. a choice mm. and so and also what one. kind of what kind of academia you want as well like you know do you want everyone to be off being their own brand or do you want to be creating good quality knowledge yeah like you know do you, do you just want something we've created some knowledge that we can sell to people is it mm. is it useful to anyone really no but we yeah. can sell it to people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's one. So yeah. <laughs> Have you got two more? I've got two more. Okay. <laughs> I could have done 20. Yeah, um, right? No, the, uh, the second one is, which is quite is interconnected to this really. It's the tying of um, contracts for researchers to specific projects, mm. you know, because that's something that enhances the insecurity. A lot of the time contracts only come about because they're on a specific project like mine at the moment. But, that means there's only roles available when there's projects available. Mm. But universities do have the funds to invest for the long-term in talented researchers uh, by employing them on permanent research contracts. Mm. And then they could give them the resources and the financial stability in that time to think about, you know, publications and craft high quality funding applications Mm. without constantly worrying about unemployment at the same time. What's my next step? Mm. You know, what's my next project? Where do I need to move in the country for that? Because like like my boss, um, she's brilliant and she's got a permanent research contract. So she's a permanent researcher within the university. She's not, you know, she brings in funding for projects that she applies for, um, which she does very well. But those positions are like gold dust. Mm. You know, they're so rare in academia. Um, and I think there's a there's a perception in academia, probably, you know, not helped by like the main the main cultural touchstones of academia being posh kids at Oxford, mm. you know, that you, 
you just have a nice relationship with the professors and you do your PhD and then you just stroll into a lectureship um, and it's just not... Or directorship. Yeah, or directorship, yeah. And it's just not the reality of academia, really. It's, you know, so it's just, it would be, to boil that down, it would be a longer term investment by individual universities in talented researchers, you know, because that would enable them to bring more money in by giving them the financial stability to craft applications and think about the new projects. Because like I was saying about, you know, my idea about net zero and stuff, there's no paid time to think about these things in. This yeah. all has to be done in my spare time mm. on top of a 100% FTE contract. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a business has to spend basically all of its energy on generating profit. Mm. And on... At the side of that is give people decent jobs, you know, <laughs> like promote the green agenda, like promote inclusion, like all the CSR and the yeah. nicer fluffy stuff kind of at the side. But at the end of the day, that that's their core focus. But then as a society, we don't need a business to just do that. Mm. We need a business to create good jobs, to create dignity to not pollute our environment yeah. like so yeah the, 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 there's all sorts in it isn't there there's just so much to kind of delve into and, and, and pull apart okay so that's two yeah <laughs> we should have done this in the pub we could have gone all night <laughs> hopefully a pub of dogs as well okay so that's two what's yeah. the third um the third is quite similar link to that actually which now i think about it is quite ironic because what I'm basically saying here is there's not enough thinking time within a profession, which is essentially about thinking, you know, mm. and this one is more, it's to get a lot of the time to get your next job in academia, you need to be promote, uh, publishing papers. Mm. A lot of the time you're doing that for free in your spare time on top of your job for the financial enrichment of journals who then charge 30 pounds for the article you wrote for free. Mm. Um, in order to secure promotion so you're working for free for the enrichment of others mm. in your spare time fundamentally destroying your work-life balance for a start in order to advance you know the work you do in your full-time job isn't enough you have to do stuff on top of this mm. um, and you're not paid for that no one's remunerated for it mm. and journals just financially profit off it so the publishing industry within academia is just broken from top to bottom mm. um, and it's it has if it has impacts on my work-life balance I can't imagine what it's like for a working parent you know um, or a family of two academics so yeah it's just absurd mm. that would be the third one so I think the link between all of these is precarity mm. <laughs> you mm. know precarity in time so links in UBI as well mm. I mean because you know before 2008 like they're not being jobs for life anymore you know i don't know when you want to say the death of, of jobs for life and careers were who anyone can place them anywhere on a time i'd say somewhere from the mid 90s to the mid to that well to 2008 maybe <laughs> but you know i was working before then i was always aware that there weren't jobs for life. There weren't really things that I'd want to be in career wise anyway. Mm. But then post that, it's just like, there's not even, there's no space for anything. It's kind of, you have to be, 
you have to be this grind culture sort of do everything mate be your own success but also do all the healthy stuff and the you know mind palace stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> and have a side hustle <laughs> yeah and be totally laid back and cool and switched on and pc and you know yeah. or not and be edgy and like you know you've got to have this really kind of defined super being sort of uh thing like it was you could just you know like you did a dead end job it was okay it's a bit dead end mm. but you think of something else because there'd be another job but it wasn't it wasn't awful yeah like it was bad but it wasn't awful you weren't being paid like money that didn't go anywhere and the jobs didn't really take the piss out of you to the extent yeah. that they do now kind of thing it's and you could afford to buy a house well I, I could because I already had some cash <laughs> um, and houses were much cheaper. But I, I, buying it from a wage, I think that was it was becoming difficult then. Like I remember like my contemporaries were all, you know, they all knew they wouldn't be able to afford anything until they were in the 30s at the very earliest. And, yeah. and even then they'd have to be working. And I think that, you know, that coincided with the sort of late 90s, like real big uptick in the, in the prices. I, I suppose... There's a part of me that kind of wants to ask of, of like what what the perfect job is, but you can't really answer that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Going. That would be that, well. That would be. I'm just thinking that would be a good seminar exercise for students, <laughs> crafting the perfect job. Yeah, I mean, just going back to what you're saying about jobs for life. Like at this point, you know, I'm what I'm complaining about really is like this isn't even it's even tricky to have a profession for life, you know, yeah, this, isn't, yeah. this isn't an individual job. Yeah. Like it's, it's a career within a certain profession and even that's becoming increasingly difficult. Yeah. yeah. So I uh, imagine if you, you know, uh, I don't know. I went to cobbler. I'm going to go with it because that's what came up. <laughs> but like, you're a cobbler. You just yeah. want to cobble. <laughs> it's like, I, I can't do. even, I can't even cobble. Yeah. All I can get is six months here and there. And my craft is just not getting any better. All I can make is one type of shoe. Like, <laughs> but the, you know, there's, there's truth in that, in that like people aren't doing what they, they want to be a professional in. They're not developing. There's no professional development going on because they're not practicing. They're not doing the work. They're not getting to practice. You're spending more time, you know, doing the job of finding work than you are doing the job of the work. Yeah, or worrying about what the next job will be. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is is which is time off the task that you're engaged in, spent on thinking of something that you needn't be thinking about. Exactly. And that that's a free line from me worrying about my next job to to the arguments behind paying a living wage because you'll get, you know, more productive workers because they'll be less worried about their, you know, their financial security. Um, it's not the same thing at all. Like, that's what I mean by being magnified a million times. But mm -hmm. it's the same thing. Precarity breeds distraction and distraction is not useful for work life balance, for work, for, you know, work itself. Um, for your mental health, for your well-being, for any of it, it's just it's completely counterproductive. Okay, let's just dip into this for five or ten minutes then. So, work and health, right? Mm. So, we know work causes chronic illness. It causes death, <laughs> maims people, yeah. as does life. Um, but it also creates 
a sense of well-being, a sense of worth, a sense of purpose, sense of meaning, sense of community, sense of belonging, hopefully a wage (laughs) or an income that allows you to live. But, you know, that's a bit idealistic these days. So, (laughs) like, yeah, just... I don't know. I don't really have a question here, but just kind of your your thoughts on health and and uh, on health in work rather than the wealth part of work. Yeah, I mean, because it's easy to say, you know, work is the enemy or work is like, but it's also essential. Like, exactly. I think we all need it. I mean, the fact that everyone kind of to a degree craves it, not just the independence, but like a function, something to do, something to be part yeah. of. And it helps form our identity, you know, it helps Mm. form the community. You know, there's that quote from the office that we spend more time with the people at work than we do our own families. Mm. You know, it's so making sure that, like to go back to the decent work thing, making sure that those, you know, workplaces and those jobs are decent is so much more, it's impossible to separate that out from the personal and the private, you know. Like you can't separate the professional and the personal there because jobs are essential. Work can be good for us, you know, um, and work will often be better for us if we put certain safeguards in place to make sure people are protected at work Mm. and well looked after and feel valued, you know, and have communities around them within work to support them. Yeah, I'm just going back to the decent work agenda, aren't I? (laughs) Institutionalized. Why don't we hear the word dignity enough? Why is it like decent work and not dignified work? Like, you know, I I, I used to hate this term basic human dignity, but <laughs> it's like I, I get it. I get that, you know, it's uh like again, David Graeber was sort of saying, you know, part of the reason that they used to strip down slaves in, in history was uh, to dehumanize. Um and it's this sort of like why do why is it decent work rather than dignified work? Why are people afraid of saying dignity? You know, like an employee should be treated with dignity. They should be, you know, they should be able to have dignity. They shouldn't be, you know, completely supplicated and and dehumanized going into a role just to try and live. Mm. Why why are we scared of certain terms, do you think? I think. I think the, like, the decent work agenda as a term and away from like things about like dignity and stuff, I think as this kind of this this kind of idea, this concept has become increasingly kind of corporatized, mm. it's it's a bit shinier, it's a bit more aspirational, mm. maybe a bit to, to say decent work, you know, rather than dignified work. I think it's anything any- could be decent, couldn't it? It's yeah, well that that's you know that's part of it i think it gives them some leeway it's a nebulous term that you know um because the, the the slogan for the living weight real living wage is a decent decent days pay for a decent day's work but you know essentially that's it it's because like the, the the core concept of a living wage is dignity you know it's it's economic mm. justice it's mm. it's being able to afford to live and being able to make sure you're being rewarded for the labor that you do mm. um and you know the at the core of that is the is dignity mm. you know but yeah i'm not I'm not really sure why we shied away from that term or around that kind of core concept towards this one and i do wonder if it's as the 
as this agenda's got a bit more shiny, a bit more HR-led, it's kind of, it's become increasingly, yeah, just just made to look a bit more aspirational than than something. Maybe there are certain words that remind people, like all employers of the more like the trade union orientated point of view, mm. trying to get away from that. Because mm. um, there's some arguments there around trade unions and the living wage campaign. So yeah, maybe that's it. Something to think about if I've got the time. Which <laughs> 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 I never do. <laughs> okay, so uh, I've done my questions. So oh. I'm going to throw it over to you if there's anything that we have missed or we should have talked about. I feel like we kind of went, I feel like it's been an unusual interview because we kind of mm. went all over the place in a different way than I normally would. And I don't necessarily feel I've got to the core of what you do. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's kind of like, I think we know what you do, but I've kind of, I, I feel like I haven't captured everything and I've, I've kind of gone about it in a weird way. So, yeah. So is there anything that you feel that we haven't, covered anything that we haven't touched on or anything that you want to kind of bring up or highlight at this point um i mean i could give just give you a quick breakdown of kind of what the core aspects of my job are if you like yeah sure yeah does that help yeah 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 Yeah. so in academia generally you have you know the teaching side of it and the research side of it Mm. um i'm primarily on the research side of it so i've done some supervising for students for masters supervisions and that kind of thing but i mainly do research so the core elements of my job change depending on where I am at a current project. So when I started this job, it was recruiting employers to interview. Then for a good six month period, it was interviewing 85 employers across West Yorkshire and Greater Manchester. Then from that, you transcribe all the interviews or you get somebody to transcribe that for you. Then you analyze those interviews for the common themes that are coming out. What are people saying? What are the findings from that? And then you write out those findings in um, either just academic papers for journals or for publicly available reports, which is what we'll be doing for this project. Mm-hmm. But the core of it is the core of qualitative research is, you know, we're not just saying things as academics, we're interpreting and translating people's lived experiences into findings to help provide more context for their lives and to hopefully make things better mm-hmm. um, for society, you know, at large. Um mm-hmm. So that would be the core aspect of what I do. And then branching off from that, what I'm doing is also looking at formulating and developing new research projects that could continue to do this to address some of society's challenges today, like like indecent work, like precarity, like climate change. Mm. And then at the same time, trying to figure out and position myself for my own future career. Um, and whether I need to pursue that research within academia or whether a different avenue outside academia could enable me to do that more directly. Mm. Yeah. So where can where can people find you? Where can um, like, you know, where can they get all the hot research? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter as I think just Callum Carson or I think Dr. Callum Carson, which we got encouraged to do at one point. Instagram, if you want to do photography, I'm Carson Callum because someone else took the other name. And yeah, we're on the, uh, that's it really. All the links are from there. So yeah, if anyone's got any questions, get in contact. Thank you again to Callum for being my guest. Thanks again to all my guests. And thanks to you, Leeds, for being my subject. And of course, most of all, thanks to you, my dear listener. I want to also say a formal hello to my overseas listeners. There's a few of you now, so... 
Hello. I want to say a special thank you to you for listening and to remind you there's a £5 Outlander Patreon tier, just saying. I'm guessing working hours is not really giving you too much insight as to why Normal Island is so very normal. I do hope it's given you some interesting reflections on the idea of work, what it is, what it might be. I hope that you can gain something from reflecting on the work of others. There's two more episodes to go for Series 3, so I'd love to hear any listeners' thoughts on the series. Of all the series, what are your favourite episodes? What are the worst ones? What have I done well? What badly? Let me know what through lines you can hear in the show. What does it make you think about your work? What do you think of my sample so far? Am I revealing anything to you? Am I barely scratching the surface? You can follow this show on Twitter at Working Hours 3 and on Instagram at Working Hours Pod Leads. Use the hashtag Working Hours Pod Leads to stay up to date on when new episodes are being released, to DM me with your questions, or most importantly, to get in touch if you'd like to be my guest on this show. Please do chuck in anything you can to help the show grow. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash working hours and join me there for a pound a month or you can make a one-off donation of whatever amount. Uh, you can also go to patreon.com forward slash working hours pod to support working hours, again, from as little as a pound a month. Why not be super awesome and join both? Do something new and something different. Remember to like, share, follow, and subscribe to Working Hours. That's me. Cheers, ears. Take care out there and be kind to each other, leads. Working Hours is produced, recorded, edited and published by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org. Please like Western Studios Leeds on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash western underscore studios underscore Leeds and on LinkedIn linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios leads are you considering taking the plunge into podcasts or audio content then think western studios for support advice and guidance on getting it made at western studios you work with a real life lawyer who is actually in leads not a piece of software not a course of articles or a series of live chats and video courses but me a person in physical place-based reality. If you want to work with me to make your podcast or any digital audio content in Leeds, whether it's for your own cause, your publicity campaigns, to promote your products, increase your sales, or just to create your own passion projects, then get in touch with me, Western Studios, now. Don't wade through vapid articles and videos and podcasts about how to make podcasts by disembodied virtual people on the web. Get on with making your podcast now, and then when it gets hard and expensive and it all goes wrong, which it will, then call Western Studios to make your podcast with you or even for you. Western Studios will take on your podcast boring, time-consuming and painful admin, recording, editing, transcription, whatever. Tell me about your podcasting pain points and I can make it all better for you. I feel your pain. For a charge, I will share it. Remember, podcast work is work. Leeds businesses, Leeds campaigns, Leeds brands. Got an inkling that you'd like a podcast but don't know where to start? 
Contact Western Studios at makemypodcast at western-studios.com and we'll start making your podcast straight away. The first hour of arranged consultation and pre-production time is free. £25 an hour after that for editing, recording, production. I can also arrange hefty discounts for the right projects. So tell me your idea and your budget and I'll tell you what I can do for you. What do you have to lose? Time, that's what. Time is running out. The best time to make a podcast was 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. Writers in Yorkshire, what are you doing with your lives? Hopefully you're writing. Well, I know there are listeners out there who want to hear great original writing performed as audio content that is about and for and has been made in Leeds. How do I know this? Because I'm one of them loiners what wants it. Help me make your old screenplays, unpublished novels, unperformed plays, stories, poems and performances, whatever you got, baby, and make it as podcast content. Is your work arty, salacious, pulpy, strange? Good. Is it unfinished? Good. I can help you with that too. I can work with you to find actors, musicians and voiceover artists and quickly realise your projects. I get practice making the shows and you get a finished, performed and published version of your writing. Save yourself the hassle and the headache of making your podcasts on your own by working with me instead.